don't have enough time to sit down and read all the best Bitcoin articles? Well, let us read them for you. This is a Crypto Economy Quick Read. Welcome back, crew, to another episode of the Crypto Economy Podcast. Uh, we are finishing up our quick read from yesterday. Uh, if you have not um, listened to yesterday's episode, that's episode 127. That is part one, the first half of Daniel Jeffries' What Will Bitcoin Look Like in 20 Years? Um, and uh, I held off the commentary, so we'll get most of the commentary here today. Um, and uh, But you're going to be a little bit lost because we are literally starting right in the middle of this thing today. So go back and listen to part one if you have not. Uh, if you have, well then sit tight because without further ado, I will be jumping into part two of what will Bitcoin look like in 20 years? Number seven. The protocols of coins will get abstracted from the coins themselves. Confidence level, very high. Right now, all the coins that exist are inextricably bound to their protocols. I expect us to abstract away the protocols for exchanging, sending, and receiving, as well as securing, defending, and storing our coins. This will mirror the evolution of today's servers from bare metal to virtualization to containers to serverless. To start with, most coins can't scale. We can't even come close to hitting Visa levels transaction processing on-chain. The holy grail of any crypto system and the subject of much infighting and controversy. Bitcoin can do 7 transactions per second at its peak. Some people have gone so far as to consider this a virtue of the coin, as it encourages people to save and store it rather than send it. That's just absurd. We should be able to move the coin as fast and as far and as often as we like. Let's face it, the one megabyte limit is nothing but a hack. Originally, Bitcoin had no limit. Then Satoshi snuck it in overnight, with no mention of it and no explanation in the source code. It was most likely nothing but a ham-fisted way to prevent DDoS attacks. We can and will come up with better flooding protections. Are you a 1 megabyte adherent? How about SegWit2x's 2 megabytes? Maybe you go for Bitcoin Cash's 8 megabyte block. Wrong. All of them are wrong and ridiculous. According to the folks at the Lightning Network, if we had 7 billion people doing a mere 2 transactions a day, it would take 24 gigabyte blocks, 3.5 terabytes a day, and 1.27 petabytes per year. We need to think differently and evolve beyond petty nonsense to design real solutions. To survive, Bitcoin and crypto must change. It's got to be easy to integrate new defenses. Newer cryptographic algorithms when quantum computers come knocking and better speeds and innovations. We can't just rest on the laurels of the Satoshi vision and assume he thought of everything. He didn't. And frankly, who gives a fuck what Satoshi thinks? He left the project. If he really wanted to guide it, he could have stuck around like Linus did with Linux. But he didn't. He left it up to the rest of us to figure it all out. 
So let's really start to do that because the current system won't stand or will just become dominated by mega payment processors just like the system we have right now. One way to do that is to abstract all the protocols and run all the older coins as something equivalent to virtual machines or containers. Then the rules are separate from the coins themselves. That's just one way, but to really become the promised breakthrough technology, blockchain needs real innovation. Either way, people need to think quick, or we'll still be debating one megabyte versus two megabyte when the crypto ruble and crypto yuan blow past us. We'll also need this because it will become necessary to defend against hostile actors and APTs, or advanced persistent threats, protocol-level attacks. Think the Great Firewall of China attacking or blocking transactions by screwing with packets and headers with state-level man-in-the-middle attacks. The NEM architecture, or New Economy Movement, is a good first step as it includes firewall-like protection for nodes. But it needs to go further to stop even more insidious and devastating assaults, and it can't take four years and a hard fork to implement the solution. The best solutions will likely be externalized security rule chains downloaded to all nodes in the network that act as intrusion detection, firewalls, and protocol inspectors, and AI-based auto-evolving rule sets and countermeasures. Think Neuromancer's ICE, link included. Number eight, we will have four dominant meta coins plus 50 to 100 minor coins, and infinite virtual variations of these coins, plus state coins. Confidence level, moderate. Right now, we're making coins for everything. Got an identity platform like Civic? Make a coin. Create a decentralized DNS? Make a coin and ICO. Building a scratch-your-ass-on-the-blockchain app? You need a coin, my friend. Actually, you don't need a coin. Coins will start to shake out into various meta categories. At this point, I can only see four types of coins needed, with a blockchain of blockchains, or post-blockchain tech, seamlessly swapping them as needed to consume services. One, deflationary saver coin. Two, inflationary spender coin. Three, action token. Four, reward token. Deflationary coins are for hoarding and investing. They will rise over time and benefit savers. Everyone needs this kind of investment, and it's the reason Bitcoin started in the first place. An inflationary coin mirrors the dollar today. Nobody likes spending Bitcoin on a flat-screen TV only to realize that they paid $175,000 for it a few years later, as the price of Bitcoin rockets up. We need stable, spendable coins. Imagine this as the classic store of value Paul Krugman is always bitching about, and know that we actually do need this to buy and sell everyday goods. An action token is for actions on the network that should always be free, such as voting or sending a text message. These are not microtransactions. Resetting my password on something should not cost the equivalent of two pennies. As the EOS folks say, quote, If you went to Amazon and it cost three cents to load the page, Nobody would load the page, end quote. Reward tokens are designed to flow around the system as a digital representation of karma, incentivizing good behavior and punishing bad behavior. 
You could literally build the ultimate universal system with just these four coins. Every other coin could simply act as a subcomponent of those coins with different metadata. 9. We'll learn we didn't know crap about economics. Are you a Keynesian planner or an Austrian free market adherent? The answer is, who cares? Confidence level? Moderate. All of our economic theories are based on studies conducting with limited data in the analog age of ink and wood pulp. All current economic theory will prove about as advanced as cave paintings as we experiment with new economic systems over the coming years. That's what these new coins are, microeconomic systems at war. It's Darwinian economics. A few basic laws of economics will hold true, but many of them will simply fall by the wayside. That's because with blockchain-dominant systems, we'll have real-time economic data on a global scale, not just a bunch of guesses done with pencil and paper a hundred years ago. As artificial intelligence tracks statistics in real time around the globe, we'll be able to see the real effects of a steel tariff enacted in one country as prices shoot up for building in another country dependent on that steel. We'll track global production and manufacturing with unbelievable precision, and what we learn will very much surprise us in so many wonderful ways. 10. A DAO, or Distributed Autonomous Organization, will grow to Fortune 500 status. Confidence level? Moderate. The most likely DAO to reach this milestone will be a DAO that mirrors an open version of Visa, in that it will likely take cuts from the transactions and miners on the most dominant network and it will help fund the future development and governance of that network. It will not hoard all the money, but act as a nexus that flows the money down to the other businesses and DAOs via smart contract, as well as to state and local governments and other non-governmental entities that benefit the network. To do that, though, the DAO has to evolve. Right now, we think of DAOs as a smart contract, not even close. A DAO will require AI to help manage and mitigate its rule sets, and it will need to be able to auto-generate templated governance models. Governance is everything in DAOs, and there are no good scalable models yet to manage a company the size of a major corporation today as an open-source meritocratic workplace. Early DAOs failed because they have what I call the brave new world problem. Everyone imagines they're the chief and nobody wants to take out the trash. It's hard to order paper clips when everyone is a king in a DAO. To function effectively, a team needs role players and stars. People also have to understand their role and accept it, even if it will change later as they build merit and experience in the system. Management is hard enough as it is in corporate environments. How do you fire someone for non-performance in a DAO? How do you ensure that the guy in charge of ICO security is actually qualified and not just elected because everyone likes him? You can't risk someone running off with $45 million in Bitcoin because Bob got elected for his great stories about Burning Man and his painting skills. The automated corporate and nonprofit architectures of tomorrow will have to evolve incredible tools for ongoing management and decision making, as well as operating agreements that function like code, to become a reality. 11. The gig economy will grow big time. 
People from the World War II generation had one or two jobs their whole life. Today, we have five or six. Confidence level, moderate. Tomorrow's people will have five or six at the same time. Half of those income streams will be automated and passive, likely some kind of crypto UBI. We will also see the rise of AI job matching services. The machines will know your capabilities and skill sets and match short-term gigs to you so you don't even have to look for a job. Imagine a software project that requires an insane amount of code, something like 10 trillion lines. Software projects are only getting more complicated and will continue to grow. AIs will write and test half of it, but people will write the other half. The project would get fed into a distributed, decentralized system that chunks up and parses out the work, acts like a project manager, and delivers the work to coders all across the worldwide network based on the reputation and skill set fingerprint. Think of it like an AI GitHub married to Upwork and the Mechanical Turk system. It could work for manufacturing and all kinds of blue-collar work as well, which can make a big dent in the haves and have-nots divide we see today. The Hong Kong Subway Artificial Intelligence is perhaps the first prototype of this kind of network, even if it's not a perfect analogy. It predicts what will fail on the subway and sends engineers to get ahead of the failures. That makes the uptime of the world's busiest subway 99%. Much of this will be governed by externalized reputation banks, powered by blockchains that will be the social credit of tomorrow. This will be both good and very, very evil. On the evil side of the house, we have the Chinese social credit system that is about as black mirror as it gets today. It will get infinitely worse as nation states use reputation banks to cram ideology down people's throats. But open, publicly managed rep banks will help us find relationships and work and figure out who to trust in business and in life. It will be a double-edged sword. The main challenge is that very few people can agree on what is good or bad in a system, and ideology tends to warp those concepts into unrecognizable messes. It will be incredibly easy to create a rule set that enslaves us all if we're not careful. The Controversy Kings I just cranked through some of the easier predictions to make. Now let's toss out a few that might just spark fierce debates and controversy in the community. Number 12. The blockchain will enable all kinds of evil. Crypto enthusiasts will have to come to terms with the fact that the blockchain can and will enable as much evil as it does good. Confidence level? Very high. Nothing is all good or evil. Everything exists on a continuum. You can kill someone with a gun, but you can also feed your family by hunting. Water sustains life, but it can also drown you or even poison you. If you're out there designing a system right now with the, quote, move fast and break things, DevOps approach, just know that it's most likely a disaster for systems that can algorithmically govern many aspects of our lives. Instead, you should adopt a go slow, think about it, and don't break things approach. You should start thinking about all the ways to destroy your system, or you won't be able to defend it. If you aren't imagining all the ways a hostile group will use the power of blockchain, one that doesn't share your views on openness and freedom and collaboration, then you're just naive. I'm halfway through an article called, What if Hitler had the blockchain? 
Frankly, I don't want to publish it because I don't want to give the bad guys any fresh ideas, but rest assured, it probably doesn't matter. Their dark minds are already hard at work imagining how to use blockchain as a system of repression and control. I will be somewhat intentionally vague here so as to not put all of these ideas out into the collective unconscious, but think digital tracking of all aspects of your life, from where you go and what you do, to statistical predictions about your behavior, as well as behavioral algorithms designed to incentivize you to conform to an ideology. And lastly, think unbreakable digital rights management and outright genocide. Genocide? Yeah. Don't forget that IBM helped the Nazis manage the Holocaust with punch cards for tracking victims. What could they have done with blockchain? Answer, many more horrible atrocities that we can only begin to imagine now. Maybe you think that an open system will always prevent abuses? Wrong. If the internet has taught us anything, it's that open systems tend toward centralization, and given enough time, central powers can and will subvert and corrupt any system to their own ends. If you're working in crypto and you're not thinking about all the ways to misuse crypto, then it's very likely that instead of designing a system to save the world, you just created a prison for it. Number 13. Bitcoin has a 50-50 shot at surviving. Most true believers will not like this one, but honestly, 50-50 might be really, really high here. Confidence level? Moderate. I know, I know, you've heard it all before. The money badger can't be stopped. New all-time high, buy and holds forever. Look, you stuck with me this long, so stick with me a little longer so I can explain. First off, I'm rooting for Bitcoin to live until my dying days, but let's look at this objectively for a few minutes to see why it might go down hard. It's probably not what you think. Bitcoin has a first mover advantage. It's the absolute first of its kind and still dominates the global market share, but it also suffers from a number of major flaws that could kill it. Basically, it's the Model T of the blockchain revolution. How many Model Ts do you see on the street today? Can you retrofit a Model T to make it burn rubber like a Lamborghini? Can you add sophisticated electronics to make it a self-driving Tesla? Nope. To start with, Bitcoin has no built-in governance. This is a crucial flaw. Only a few ways to change it exist. The first is to submit a proposal where almost everyone agrees, and as we have seen with SegWit, that's incredibly hard. It took four years for the change to get adopted. The second is to start a new project and hard fork it. This might be the only way this actually works in the end. A team might fork it and build in governance, but it's a long shot. A coin with well-designed, widespread, build-in governance will have a massive advantage over Bitcoin and could easily replace it, as it makes upgrades seamless and smooth. Upgrades and responses to attacks by well-funded hostile forces will need to move fast and percolate throughout the network in hours or days, not years. What about scaling? We already talked about that problem. Changing the block size won't cut it. It will require something more radical. What if China turns the Great Firewall on it? Would it even be possible to retrofit private relays and other anti-interference code into the system at this late stage? What if the government simply decide that they will spend a billion dollars on a data center and secretly designed ASICs to run the system? Could any miners compete? 
What if hostels just decided to round up all the core developers? How easy would it be to replace them considering the tremendous shortage of talent in the crypto world now? These are only some of the nearly insurmountable problems of my favorite crypto. I point them out not to kill it, but to make people think. If you can really see a problem, you can find a way to fix it. But if we're only going to deal with fake problems like the block size limit, we will get nowhere. Bitcoin is a beautiful, brilliant idea, and it's already changed the world. It won't fail because it's a fraud or a scam, but because of its own hard-coded rules, infighting, and lack of governance. Of course, it doesn't have to fail. We can start thinking about how to save it right here, right now. As I noted earlier, some kind of virtualization or containerization that allows Bitcoin to adapt and evolve by migrating to an abstracted set of protocols and defenses would help ensure that it not only survives, but thrives. I'm rooting for it. I'm betting if you're reading this, you are too. The best way to make sure it survives is to understand all the real reasons it could fail and start designing real solutions to those problems today so that when they do arrive, we're ready. The final frontier. I have a lot more predictions, but I'll save them for my fiction. Maybe I'll do a follow-up of this article goes viral. I also left a few evil ideas off the table because I do not want to see them come to pass. If someone else comes up with them, there's nothing I can do about it. But the worst scenarios in the Monte Carlo pathways of tomorrow will not come from my keyboard. Cryptocurrencies represent a fundamental upgrade to the economic systems of the world. Once they're fully booted up and integrated into the global and interplanetary networks of the future, the world will look very, very different in ways we can only begin to understand. Hundreds of years from now, today's economies will look like the feudal economies of the past. Cryptocurrencies, decentralized apps, and decentralized autonomous organizations even hold the possibility of bootstrapping us into Star Trek-like post-scarcity economies, but it will take time. I'm not betting on singularity-level acceleration taking us there tomorrow, even if I sprinkle the singularity into all of my sci-fi work because it's the stuff of great fiction, but it's probably not reality. If I'm wrong, then my uploaded and snapshotted virtual mind, running on a global fog of computronium in a matrioska brain, will just have to deal with it. But I doubt it. So where does that leave us? Crypto will be both good and evil like everything in life. If you're working on crypto, then you're building the world of tomorrow, but don't expect it to arrive next week. Inertia has a way of slowing down even the fastest rockets. Just enjoy the ride while we boldly go where no one has gone before. Check out the interview I did with the awesome Core Media team on the future of crypto on SoundCloud. All right, and that will close our really fun article from Daniel Jeffries, again, titled, What Will Bitcoin Look Like in 20 Years? Um... So now comes the fun part. We get to talk about where I uh, agree and where I disagree or where I think um, maybe he might be wrong. Uh, so um, the first point I think I can fully agree with him on and he's already been proven right is the bubble will burst. Um, I mean, he was. this was in October of 2017. So 
uh, obviously the bubble burst like two months later, literally. So um, I think that's an easy one. Yep, well done. And I think, uh, uh, well, I don't think everybody saw it coming. Um, but uh, as he said, it was a, it's a pretty simple call to make. Um, but two, I have to disagree with him on. And I think it's just, it may be a time frame or a, um, maybe it's just a wording thing. But he says, government cryptos will flourish. Now, there are a couple of different reasons I disagree. First, uh, I highly encourage everyone to read the Bitcoin Standard. They do a, he does a wonderful job, the Seyfedin Amos. Um, he does a wonderful job of summing up uh, or, or making easily digestible the history of money um, and explaining how closely tied it is really to the, the history of civilization. Excuse me. Um, and uh, uh, I think, uh, so maybe this is just a timeline thing, but I don't see... I think government cryptos will actually absolutely exist. I think they will come about. But if governments basically have to bend to making their own cryptos because of the adoption of Bitcoin as sound money, I think they will I think every nation will attempt some sort of national crypto, but I do not think they will flourish. They will only flourish where they attempt to mimic or directly compete with the monetary policy of Bitcoin, which I think regardless of what you think is going to be, um, whether or not you think that's considered flourishing, it will fundamentally change the elements of what you can, or the limits of what a government can do with their national currency. Because the option of exit will become available to every citizen and as we become more global and a more digital economy um i think national borders are going to fall away very quickly and if they attempt to reinstate that national control and ideology which i think will be propped up by a lot of the general public i mean he says and this is another quote people will adopt government cryptos like good little sheep without a second thought even better they'll think it's absolutely the right thing to do and they'll even be willing to kill for it if told that that's right um end quote and i agree with that um but i don't think i think the economics and i think history proves me right on this um empires rise or fall by sound money um and i really really encourage you to read um Seyfedin, the, the Bitcoin standard for kind of a brief overview of this. And I have to admit that there were some things in the book, or at least so far, I'm only about, I guess I'm maybe halfway through it. Um, there were actually parts of the monetary history and specific things that he talked about that I did not know. And I thought I had done, I've done extensive research on the history of money and how it connects to, you know, the Roman Empire, the Great Depression, the Civil War, um, World War One and Two, so on and so forth. And there were a number of things in there that I was like, damn, I never knew that specific element or this piece of it or this way of thinking about it. So highly, highly recommend that book, um, particularly on the topic of what's fundamentally, to see what is fundamentally changing in with Bitcoin and crypto. Uh, and national government currencies are actually a rather new phenomenon. Um, yes, there have been government currencies for a very long time, but the idea of a strictly fiat 
government currency has not been. They've almost always been based on monetary commodities like gold and silver. Um, I mean, that was most of the 1800s, really. It was not actually until 1913 and then the subsequent 1914 breakout of World War One, where national currency, national fiat currency, really exploded onto the scene, and we kind of entered the century of endless, never-ending war, and because it can be paid for indefinitely, and because the economic growth was so great, um, it was so much easier for governments to siphon off the extra value created by their populations. Um, but fiat currency is entirely based on trust. And as soon as that trust begins to die, trust is not something that just you can rebrand and it just comes right back. Um, and I think that's a I think that's one of the main reasons why the thinking that government crypto will flourish is actually wrong. Is because um, when as Bitcoin, if we get to the point where Bitcoin is so successful that governments feel they need to make a crypto in order to save or secure their currency, um, unless they are as strict as Bitcoin is in their monetary policy and can prove or basically distribute in some way that that is happening um, or that is secure somehow, uh, I think we I think that's already at the point in which it's not going to work anymore. Um, for the same reason, I mean, we're, we, we have five current currencies right now, like Turkey just kind of joined the club. We got uh, uh, Venezuela, Argentina hit. Um, I'm not sure how they're doing right now. Uh, Zimbabwe is going through it again. Just a, There's a lot of currencies right now in free fall. Um, Turkey just hit, I think, uh, 20% in a week or a day or something crazy. I don't know. It's getting really bad. Um, and uh, like Venezuela, like they made a quote unquote crypto, but you can't call it flourishing. Um, and now they're trying to reissue the currency by cutting off three zeros. Like these things don't help. They actually speed up the process of devaluing the currency because people realize how fickle and worthless the paper money actually is. Um, and I do, I honestly don't see unless Bitcoin does its job very, very well. I do not see governments suddenly becoming responsible and willing to tell their population hard truths about where value comes from, how wealth is created, and the fact that things are limited and we can't just spend to get things indefinitely. That's not how wealth works. Um, government is not a perpetual motion machine of wealth. Uh, so, um, so maybe, maybe on a 20-year timeline, uh, I am actually being overzealous here. Um, but I kind of think that when the ball really gets rolling on this, like this is this is a network that is growing exponentially and it has yet to break that trend. Um, and exponential trends get out of hand very, very quickly. Uh, so I don't see I don't see that the effect that it will have in that regard happening after 20 years from now. I see the major shifts occurring sooner. And I think part of that is specifically because so much of the global financial system is so far out of balance. And there are so many monetary systems that are digging themselves into 
inescapable holes. Um, I mean, if you look at what has caused Venezuela to collapse, the United States has done the exact same thing. Their policies really do not differ that much. They've just not nationalized and done some of the explicit economic manipulation that Venezuela engaged in that accelerated it. But more importantly, the U.S. is the empire. Their their dollar is so widespread. I mean, the whole the whole global system is still basically reserved. Uh, the reserve currency is the dollar. So when these other currencies start collapsing, um, it increases the pressure um, or it increases the buying demand for the dollar, um, which is why I think the dollar will be the last to fall in all of this mess. Uh, but again, because this is all kind of coming to head at the exact same time, when trust is lost in the dominant fi fiat currencies, I don't think it will just be a matter of, oh, now we have a crypto and everybody trusts us again. Uh, it just doesn't come back like that. So I kind of differ on the process that that will unfold in. And again, maybe I'm just being overzealous. Um, but yeah, we'll see. If this thing lasts 20 years, maybe we'll come back and have this discussion and I'll love exploring where and why I'm wrong about that. Uh, next point... Um, or I guess my confidence level to where I differ on that one was that he says that was very high, um, and I would call that a moderate, in my opinion, maybe even a low. Um, I think we're going through a transition where fiat currency is just loses trust. Um, so let's call it moderate just to be safe. Um, the next one was a killer idea. The killer idea is not a browser. Uh, I'm totally with him there. Uh, I absolutely love Brave Browser, um, but I just think that there's some major piece to this that's just not happened yet. I've tried so hard to think about what that killer app might look like or the killer use case um, uh, for kind of the, the average integration with the blockchain, like how, how do you use it and uh, what, what does it look like, but... I've not found, I've not landed on anything. I've kind of explored like maybe 20 different branches of things, but have landed on nothing that I think is solid. Uh, but I do, despite the fact that I love a lot of the things that the Brave browser is doing, and I think it's a good beginning step, I, I agree. I don't think it's a browser is is a really, really elaborate and feature-rich um, browser is really the solution to this. Um uh, coins will get abstracted from the protocols. Uh, he's right here when he talks about scaling um, and the Lightning Network numbers make make it supremely obvious in my point in my opinion um, that this is not really about the block size and that's kind of irrelevant. Um, I talked about that actually in my article, the uh, seven misunderstandings of Bitcoin's scaling problem. Uh, so if you want to dig a little bit deeper into my thoughts on that. Um, I think I pretty much still agree with everything I wrote in that article. <laughs> uh, uh, but he goes on a little bit down and says, quote, It's got to be easy to integrate new defenses, newer cryptographic algorithms when quantum computers come knocking, and better speeds in innovation. I kind of think that this is a little bit incompatible with one of his later points, and the later point is the one that I specifically agree with. Um, 
So I think quantum computers is actually a reason why it should not be easy to integrate new algorithms. Um, cryptography is a game of time and survival, like for cryptographic soundness. Uh, like it, it's achieved with just excessive amounts of, you know, making algorithms into computational punching bags. Um, so we should be thinking about and preparing for quantum computers today, absolutely, but this should get a decade of testing and a five-year implementation process to know that we have covered every possible corner, dotted every I, and crossed every T. Um, I think security and maybe like a hacker uh, and like brute forcing artificial intelligence will be a major part of that process um, because I think that's where AI will find its niche going forward, um, particularly during its development, is in extremely specific uh, learning towards a towards a specific goal. Um, so very much like you know they taught the um, the supercomputer not too long ago, the AI, um, to play the game Go in like eight hours. Um, I think that's where the applications of AI will be um, uh, hugely useful is in simple learning processes that are very sound and dynamic enough to basically branch in any way it needs to branch um, that's just given one goal and, and it just runs with it. Um, and that one goal could be finding a quantum-resistant, um, super-secure cryptographic algorithm. Um, uh, but either way, I think we will, I think we will be coming to a solution to that problem before quantum computers are really a giant threat. Um, and because Bitcoin has a number a number of different layers in its cryptographic security. Not everything is, um, like breaking one thing does not necessarily break the entire system. Uh, so um, I think, uh, and you've got, you know, the hashing, you've got the um, signatures, um, which are changeable, which is good. Um, uh, and we're seeing that possibility with Schnorr signatures and the fact that we now have SegWit um, and signatures have been segregated, you know, segregate. Um, uh, so I think the possibility of response there is actually pretty good. Um, and I think the, I think when we get to the point of like worrying about actually address creation and this explicit 256 keys, SHA-256 keys in general, we would have a huge problem on our hands, but I think we'll be able to see that coming along before it actually gets here. I don't think it will just be we'll wake up one morning and it will be gone. So, uh, but because of that, he says that we should be able to adopt these new things quickly. I think that's the opposite of having security is, uh, I think a governance or quick to upgrade, particularly if we're talking about consensus breaking upgrades here. I think that's the opposite of having a secure and, uh, resistant against attack system. Um, uh, another quote. So one way to do this is to abstract all the protocols, run all the older coins as something equivalent to virtual machines or containers. Then the rules are separate from the coins themselves, end quote. Uh, this is, I think, very along the lines of the sidechain and like modularity concept and not like sidechains as if everything is going to have a sidechain, but just in the con the very idea 
of pegging something or bridging it with a contract that can be deployed on chain into a new layer or this sub uh, external network or um, set of transactions where they can maintain all their own features and all this good stuff. Um, but without some sort of a bridge, it, without the protocol and the coin interacting together, you lose the you lose its security properties. It's no longer it's no longer secured by a blockchain if you cannot get a final arbitration on the blockchain. So um, I'm not sure if maybe I'm just mis misunderstanding what he's saying here, um, but I agree with him in part. Uh, but not necessarily that the protocols and the coins uh, will be, I think they will, they won't be completely separate. They will be contractually connected somehow in a cryptographic smart contract. Um, very much like the Lightning Network is kind of a microcosm of exactly that. Um, uh, so, quote, either way, we need to think quick. We'll still be debating one megabyte versus two megabyte while the crypto ruble and crypto won blow past us, end quote. Uh, again, I think this is an issue of trust, and if we get to the point where all the governments are having to establish a crypto, um, I think we'll already reach a point where they might not be very likely to flourish. Um, but I could be completely wrong about that and misinterpreting or misunderstanding how people would respond. And again, is this a 20-year transition or is this a 50-year transition? And I'm just, you know, jumping the gun a little bit with that. So maybe. I don't know. Uh I don't see a crypto ruble or a crypto yuan blowing past Bitcoin. Now, this one is where he talks about the four types of meta currencies. This is one specifically where I have to admit I pretty much disagree. And this is something that like, I'm constantly debating. Anybody who's listened to the podcast for a while will know that I really want to see if there I love exploring the idea of alternative cryptocurrencies but I have a incredibly difficult time seeing the economics of it um it seems to go against a number of things for one he says we're going to have a deflationary savers coin and an inflationary spenders coin I do not think that number two will exist at all for a number of different reasons um one is, uh, I think it ignores. Well, first, let me give you let me give you a quote here. An inflationary coin mirrors the dollar today. Nobody likes spending Bitcoin on a flat screen TV, only to realize they paid one hundred seventy five thousand dollars for it a few years later as the price of Bitcoin rockets up. We need stable, spendable coins. Imagine this as the classic quote store of value Paul Krugman is always bitching about, and how we actually do need this to buy and sell everyday goods. Um, what we need is a stable price for everyday goods, um, or at least one that does not constantly fluctuate with an incredibly volatile asset. But right now, Bitcoin is not serving the purpose of money, really, because it is still in its adoption phase, and it is so volatile. But if we are specifically creating, like this is based on core economic axioms, an inflationary spendable coin or spender's coin will just never have a market. Um, I mean, if we're talking about the dollar, the reason the dollar has a market is because it's first it's based off, it was 
bootstrapped by a gold-backed currency. Uh, then, after World War II became the world reserve currency, after we basically monopolized the world financial system, um, and then it's also pseudo-forced on the population, even though it was already it had already been adopted um, through the legal tender laws. Uh, so I think that's really the only way a uh, inflationary currency can come into existence. So unless he's just talking about that, well, you know, maybe governments will retain enough spending and purchasing power in an age of Bitcoin. But I question how well that will work. I still think they'll have to compete with Bitcoin. Um, and if they do not have a strict monetary policy, they will not, their currency will not survive. Um, but again, I may be wrong about that. I may be giving Bitcoin way too much power than it actually has. Uh, but these, there, is, there is no need. There's no market need for an inflationary coin. Um, the saver's coin, the deflationary coin, is all that's needed. Why? Because that's the core utility of money. I talked about this in a couple episodes, actually, last week, uh, more specifically in the yield on, of money held um, episode. Um, uh, which I encourage anybody who has not listened to that one, dig into that one. It's really, really an important core concept of economics that I think is has a widespread fallacy that is logically unsound. Um, uh, but holding value, there are literally a million things we can use that don't hold their value. Like That's the differentiator of money is that it does not degrade. It doesn't, if you put money in your refrigerator, it won't be rotten in three weeks if you don't eat it by the sell date. Like, like that. that's the reason money is valuable. And it also, so it fails, fails to recognize that um, as a spender coin, quote unquote, loses value or fails to hold it, there are two sides to every transaction, somebody who wants the currency and somebody who is trying to get rid of the currency. If no one wants the currency, why would they accept it for payment? If it's just going to lose value, why not just trade it for raw chicken? You know, like, like there are thousands, millions of things that we can exchange for that will not hold their value. We don't want that in our money. That's why deflationary money is the one that's naturally adopted. And if they did, if they did take the inflationary money, what would they immediately do with it? They would immediately try to exchange it for something that did retain its value unless they had an immediate purchase. If they don't have an immediate purchase, the point of money is so that their value doesn't rot until they have something that they can buy. Um, so you want it in something that doesn't lose its value. Uh, and... It's funny is that this point actually kind of goes to his point number nine that we're going to learn we don't know crap about economics and blockchains will teach us so much about this is that well that's actually a great point because i think this is exactly one of those things where we will realize that inflationary spendable coins are pointless um that they are there's a very explicit reason why they don't survive in a natural market First, one of the things that that fallacy is based off of is that people will never spend their deflationary coins, and that's wrong. Um, and we see that, again, that's something that's commonly referred to as the wealth effect. And we see this as a stark difference in retail purchases between a bull market and a bear market in Bitcoin. 
when there is a bull market and people see that their savings double, triple, quadruple, or 10x in value, that they decide, they, they see the amount of wealth that they suddenly have, and they're like, oh my God, I can buy all these things. I can finally buy a house and get on with my life and start a family, or you know, I can finally buy that investment or that 3D printer or you know, whatever it is. Um, and um, so they spend it when they see it increase heavily. People think that, oh, they're going to hold indefinitely because it's going up. It's like, well, no. As soon as it starts going up, people get nervous. People realize that the growth is not going to last forever. There will be corrections. And I mean, it's exactly why people start shorting the market. Like, there's, n there's no such thing as something that just grows indefinitely for all incremental periods of time. On a half a year time scale, it may be massively down, just like we have seen since December. Um, and time, ultimately, time preferences change with the amount of wealth that you have. Uh, as soon as people realize their wealth increases, they suddenly have a much higher time preference for what they can do with it. The reason no one holds forever just because something is deflationary is because everybody dies. Like Time is just as scarce as Bitcoin, and for each individual human existence, it will run out. Time preference is a real thing, and just because... Two years from now, you might have a lot more value if you don't drink coffee this morning. Some people just want coffee in the morning. So um, I think this is kind of an economic fallacy that is just widespread and incorrect. Um, I think an inflationary spendable coin will be as useful and as widely adopted as Frycoin. And if you don't know what Frycoin is, well, that's my point. Um, so look into it. It's F-R-E-I-C-O-I-N. It was the Keynesian philosophy in its beautiful, full uh, fruition, um, and it lasted all of like a week. So <laughs> um, and then the action token, um, I kind of think this is a, m a misunderstanding of it as well, um, or... I don't know. I don't know about utility tokens. Uh, he talks about like for actions on a network uh, that should be free, such as voting or sending a text message. Um, somehow you'll have a token, and I just don't see how tokens add to that purpose. Um, I think there will be like I kind of agree with his reward token, and uh, but anything that might exist in an action token, I think will much will mimic more a reward or fan or collectible style token um, because people love exclusive communities and social groups like that's a really cool thing and I think tokens will be a part of that um, to kind of show that you're that you can you know privately prove that you're part of some inside club or you know some thing and you've got you've got your digital trading cards and all that kind of stuff i think that's a part of the real world and it will always be um and in fact i see the digital world being an expanded version of that i think that is going to be even more possible and more fun to play around with and digital currencies and games and that kind of thing but um i'm not 100 percent sure any of those really need their own blockchain you know maybe maybe some side chain ah I don't know. That's a that's a really hairy situation. Uh, I'm just not 100% sold on the utility tokens. For instance, he says if something needs to be free, like sending a text message or voting, well, then it should just be free, and why does it need a token in the first place? Um, uh, 
So I don't know. Um, I think I've hit so much of that topic in previous episodes that you can go back and just kind of listen to my discussions about tokens and utility tokens and reward tokens, and um, inevitably we'll hit it again. But I'm still I'm still wishy-washy about that whole thing. Now I do think I do think thousands of coins and tokens and stuff will exist. I think that's kind of I kind of think that's inevitable. But the question is, will they be? They will not be money. Um, they will be. I think there'll be more cultural and social solutions like rewards, collectibles, clubs, exclusive clubs, fan coins, that kind of thing. Um, that's why I'm actually kind of interested in what Tatiana is doing with Token FM, where you have your major fans can get can buy your token and help combination of help support you and get exclusive rights and ticket purchases and that kind of thing. So. Uh, there, there's something there, I think. I think there's a lot of social aspects in currencies, um, but not in money. Uh, there's a little bit, there's a delineation there that I think is important. Um, nine, we'll learn we didn't know crap about economics. Totally right there. Um, I kind of acts like, he starts off with, are you a Keynesian planner or an Austrian free market adherent? The answer is, who cares? Um... Yeah, I think uh, I think he's assuming too much that Keynesian and Austrian economics are these two major players that have been at battle for a long time. When in reality, uh, Austrian economics has been this nearly invisible fringe fraction of economic thought for a century, um, and it is only very recently, and in many ways thanks to Bitcoin and crypto, that it has become a huge part of the discussion. And I think the understanding and realization of Austrian theory is exactly what crypto is doing in realizing that the Keynesian theory has many, many flaws. Um, so I don't think Bitcoin and crypto disproves Austrian theory. To the contrary, I think it's in—it's it, not even think. It is, it is entirely built upon the principles of the Austrian school of economic thought. Um, so... I think it's a little, I think it's a little too easy to just say, oh, all economics will be out the window because Austrian theory is mostly just based on economic axioms, like just indisputable truths and then extrapolating from those. And those in, indisputable truths will not be challenged. Um, like the economic axioms will not change. Maybe the second and third layer um uh, results of how those interact in these micro economies, uh, maybe those will change, and maybe we'll realize we misunderstood how money come up, comes about, or you know, specific, just like just like um, uh, Fernando Ulrich's article that we just read um, about the kind of temporal uh, ordering of the history of money, Mises and Menger, their dominant theories on money, did not really cover those, um, did not really explore that history and that side of the natural creation of money. So in that sense, I think really the consequences and kind of extended applications of the theory can and definitely will evolve, but I think it doesn't 
I think what we're going to learn is that it's still all based on the foundational axioms that underlie the Austrian theory, um, because they're mostly just foundations of physical reality and human action. Um, uh, so I kind of disagree with him on that point that either or doesn't matter and that it's both Austrian and Keynesian theory is going to go out the window. Um, and then he quote, uh, quote, he says, basically it's the Model T of the blockchain revolution. How many Model Ts do you see on the street today? You could kind of make the same argument about TCPIP, that it's the Model T of internet connection protocols. But as basic as it is, we still use it today. Why? Because building in layers is how you take the core elements enabled by it and extend it to a limitless range of other applications and services. And I think we will see this same thing happen with the blockchain, quote-unquote. Um, I kind of think Bitcoin in particular. Um, but this is just based on the thinking that, like this idea of the Model T of blockchain, um, I think it's mostly based on the what I consider a flawed thinking that features and services will be built into the blockchain itself. And I just... The main reason I disagree with this is just the same exact reason the Netflix service, the user account management and sign up, the error correction, the bandwidth optimizations, and all the other things that make Netflix possible did not require any change to CP TCP IP to make it functional. It all uses TCP IP and works at a higher layer. Now, I already kind of hit the Bitcoin governance thing. Um, he says that Bitcoin not having built-in governance is a flaw, a crucial flaw. I think the opposite. Um, I think the fact that its rule set is not open to, or is highly defensible against political um, discussion is one of its great features. Um, one of its most promising security elements. Um, and that only a few ways to change it exist. Um, I actually think Bitcoin's governance is very good, um, and we read an article by, it's called Bitcoin Governance, was it Francis? P no, no, it's Pierre Richard, Pierre Richard, um, I'm not sure which episode it is, I'll link to it though, um, about, specifically about Bitcoin governance, and I think trying to create some sort of voting democratic governance structure, I think is... A move backwards. I think the very process of proof of work is a means of establishing what is right with just unbiased, completely un apolitical computation. Um, and I think that's what makes it so powerful, is that it does not care about religion or politics or cultural divides or language barriers like it is the one thing that we can all despite immense differences in so many other regards we can still at least come together and say okay most proof of work on this rule set is our money and we can still trade with a global network in spite of all of our other differences even where we may be enemies in some other regard um uh, okay, uh, and then I actually labeled a quote that I think is a little bit contradictory to his proposal of needing a governance change. 
So, quote, management is hard enough as it is in corporate environments. How do you fire someone for non-performance in a DAO? How do you ensure the guy in charge of ICO security is actually qualified and not just elected because everyone likes him? You can't risk someone running off with $45 million in Bitcoin because Bob got elected for his great stories about Burning Man and his painting skills. Um, so I think that kind of backs up my argument that governance structures are kind of inherently crappy. Um, and they are subject to exactly these kinds of problems. Right now, Bitcoin's consensus rules do not have this problem for a very specific reason, is because it's just proof of work and whatever adheres to the rules, those changes can be made and adopted by the community. Um, so, uh, and then that's where he kind of goes into upgrades and responses need to move fast and percolate throughout the network in hours or days but then goes on to say a little bit further down, instead you should adopt a go slow, think about it, and don't break things approach. And I think those are kind of, uh, I think those kind of run into each other at some point. They don't, they don't, they're not completely compatible with one another. Um, uh, and then one of his final points that I pretty much agree on is the gig economy will grow massively. Um, I, He's absolutely right with that. I think we're already seeing this happen in a major way, and it will only accelerate. Um, companies will be, I think they will be forced to become more fluid and distributed because the speed of change and new technology that happens in this space and as we move into kind of more open source and more fluid development, that any institution that is not nimble and dynamic will very quickly go from whatever profits they had to serious losses and if they cannot change at the pace that the economy changes around them they will just collapse and something will take its place um whew, wow okay that was all the points i was going to hit that was a serious that was a serious rant i think i, I think i spoke longer than i read oh wow quite a bit yeah i think i hit like two <laughs> two-thirds of this episode is just me ranting um so uh, we will definitely just close this here. Um, I hope you guys like that, and you know, maybe we'll come back in 20 years and see where I'm wrong, and if all my economic discussion and uh, study is off or not, and blockchain proves that I have no idea what I'm talking about. And you know what? That would be cool. I would love to explore why and see what we learned in the midst of all this. Um, all right. I hope you guys enjoyed that. This is part two closing um, our uh, uh, What Bitcoin Will Look Like in 20 Years by Daniel Jeffries. Uh, thank you so much, Daniel, for this article. It was a whole lot of fun. I love talking about this stuff and just exploring it, and I hope you guys did too. Do not forget to follow him on Twitter and Medium, uh, and I will link to his Hacker Noon page and uh, or Medium page in particular, just to see all of the other stuff. He, he writes constantly, and he's got a lot of great stuff. You can find his Patreon page up there as well. Um, but yeah, don't forget to follow him on Twitter. And also don't forget to follow me at The Crypto Economy and uh, on Medium as well at The Crypto Economy. And I'm also at The Crypto Economy on Mastodon with the BitcoinHackers.org uh, tag at the end. Um, so uh, if you actually just go to my Twitter page, you can see the link um, to immediately follow me if you sign up on Mastodon. Uh, and uh, yeah, that will, that will do it for today. Um, I will catch you guys after the weekend. I've got a lot of articles. The last two days have kind of brought this flood of things that I want to talk about and some topics I want to hit. Um, 
And uh, yes, I'm really excited about next week. So don't forget to subscribe on iTunes so you can hear about the really, really awesome stuff we're going to be breaking into uh, come the beginning of next week. Um, and of course, if you would like to leave a review, that has been a wonderful help um, from those guys out there that have done that for me. Thank you so much. Um, it's awesome. It's really expanded the audience pretty quickly, and I think that's got a lot to do with it. And also, if you would like to help keep this running and funded, it takes a huge amount of time and effort. And um, if you could donate, it would be a wonderful, wonderful help. I think I'm actually going to finally have to consolidate and cash out uh, the donations I've had so far. Um, it's This is a huge time, time in particular, but also a eats up a lot of money. Um, so if you can donate, um, if you're enjoying this show and you think you're getting something out of it, uh, it would be hugely, hugely appreciated. Just a couple of bucks goes a long way. I'll have my Bitcoin address in the Twitter post and in the show notes. Um, and, uh, hopefully I'll have a better way to monetize this going forward. And I'm hoping I can do this without advertisements. Uh, we will see, and I'll keep you up to date on it. And if, uh, if anybody has any clever ideas, uh, throw my way because um, I'm trying to explore all things and I don't want to make anybody annoyed or uh, drive anybody away either. The project itself and this podcast is more important to me. So either way, um, if you would like to donate, it's a huge help. And for those who have, thank you, thank you, thank you. It, it You don't know how much I appreciate it. Um, with that, though, uh, uh, you can also get a treasure through my affiliate link, and that won't cost you a thing, and you'll finally have gotten your hardware wallet that is absolutely crucial if you're holding any amount of Bitcoin or crypto. Um, get your hardware wallet, but just don't forget to use my affiliate link because it doesn't cost anything uh, extra to you, but it does send a couple of bucks my way. So thank you guys so much for listening. This has been the Crypto Economy Podcast, and I will catch you all next week with some more episodes. All right, guys, take it easy.